It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Pran Yoganathan. Pran, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you, Alvin. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you for having me on. This is a real uh, exciting time to be alive, uh, Dr. Pran, and, and it's with guests like you that uh, really get me fizzing in the morning. Uh, we are recording from Melbourne. You're in Sydney, Australia. And you have just burst onto the social media scene with your prolific uh, posts about health and well-being and some nutritional stuff, which all stems from your incredible incredible medical background as this very talented gastroenterologist. For those that don't know, what does a gastroenterologist do? Uh, thanks, mate. That was very kind of you to uh, say. Look, uh, as a gastroenterologist, what we... Um, what we specialise in is basically diseases of, of, of the gut um, and liver as well as the pancreas. So essentially, uh, we, we're doctors of the digestive tract. Um, and so, you know, given this sort of specialty, we, we do a lot of endoscopies and colonoscopies and deal with a lot of liver disease. What we find is the that we're, we're at the front line, I suppose, of, of this impact of digestive uh, diseases and, and, and diet, the intersection between digestive diseases and diet. Um, and so I guess this is, a, this is where a lot of my posts stem from is, is essentially that, that intersection. Um, uh, look, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that you've, <laughs> you've enjoyed my, my post today because I try and make sure that a lot of them are evidence-based. There's some exciting literature um, that's, that's up and coming and, and, you know, I try and stay on top of it and, um, and, and just put it out there in a digestive format for, for, for my followers. Excuse the pun. Now, <laughs> uh, now Doc, you, uh, you were quoted... Uh, and I'll and I'll butcher this a lot, but you you were talking rather about whenever you treat patients, if you have to go for the prescription pad now, you feel like you might have failed them, or it's kind of like a last resort thing. And and this mindset and this thinking is something that you wouldn't typically associate with someone in your field. And I'm I'm curious to know the genesis of how you sort of ended up doing what you're doing. Sure, uh, I think I think the healthcare industry. We're always taught, you know, in, in medicine that prevention is better than than treatment or or, or cure, so to speak. Um, very few illnesses are curable, of course. So, you know, but the thing is, as as medics, we're not really taught the tools to how do you prevent illness um, and and how is that really done? I think. Uh, 
you know, it's I, I do believe in the philosophy of, of being able to apply medications when required. And, and certainly I've made mention to the fact that things like vaccinations and antibiotics have been immensely impactful for humanity uh, overall in terms of lengthening our lifespan and helping us with uh, communicable diseases um, uh, such as infection. Um, however, my, my concern is that, that there are lifestyle-based illnesses now like diabetes, obesity, blood pressure, um, hypercholesterolemia. These sort of things, reflux is another, which we are heavily medicating with no emphasis on, well, how can we utilise lifestyle to be able to uh, prevent this? And as a specialist, you know, I've done this now for approaching a decade um, in in the specific field of gastroenterology. I'm I'm deeply unhappy with the way we we, uh, are not using prevention. It's automatically that we're reaching for the prescription pad. That's across primary care and across across us as well as specialists. So I just think it's an unsustainable uh, trajectory. Um, I think there is no way we'll be able to keep this up from an economic perspective. In addition, we know a lot of these drugs which interfere with normal physiology uh, probably will be associated with side effects. Um, and so whilst I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that not everyone will make lifestyle changes simply through motivation or whatever factor, um, I certainly offer it to almost every person that I, that I meet. I would love to explore this uh, a bit deeply, Prana. I suffered from GERD for 17 years from the age of 19 till just a few years ago now. Mm-hmm. And I was seen by 17 different general practitioners over that time for to get repeat uh, prescription medication, Losec, Omeprazole, yep. Somac, up to 40 milligrams a day at its highest, usually around about 20. Two surgeons two endoscopies, every single person said that what I had was incurable, it was a genetic throwback, and that there was nothing I could do about it just to shut up and take the medication. Yeah. Yeah, look, this is the paternal approach, the paternalistic approach that healthcare's got, unfortunately. Uh, It's a closed door. Uh, You, as the end user of, of that industry, can't look in. Um, and, and what social media is allowing us is a brave new world. It's essentially my philosophy is I want to kick open these doors, do you know what I mean, and, and allow people to look inside uh, what, what is going on. Um, and, and the internet's a very powerful tool, you know, and I think people are becoming more and more empowered by this and, and led with, with people such as yourself that, that are um, doing these wonderful podcasts. I think it's just empowering people more and more, and that's fantastic needs to be done. With regards to what you've gone through, that is not an unusual story. That, that is someone who's a chronic sufferer of reflux, that's their journey through the healthcare sector. Um, and you're made to feel that this proton pump inhibition is, a, is, is lifelong and inevitable. But as you know, um, reflux, and this is well established in the literature, it is linked to metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome, which is the process that encompasses obesity um, and, and diabetes as well, along with a whole host of other conditions. So really, you can't address reflux without addressing the fundamentals of why it's occurring. 
And um, I've often made made mention to, to this fact in my post that we, by nature, we, by definition, are acidic digesters. We, we depend on hydrochloric acid to be able to cleave our food, in particular protein, to an absorbable form. Now, as we go through our life, our stomach becomes less efficient at, at, at producing hydrochloric acid. So, in fact, the older you get, the more neutral or your stomach approaches neutrality. So, yet, paradoxically, reflux becomes more common as you get older. So, it doesn't make sense to me that this is a disease of acid or excess acid. It is simply an inability to contain acid within the stomach. And that, that is a function of the diaphragmatic strength, which the diaphragm ages as we um, or thins out the older we get. In addition, the lower esophageal sphincter, which is the sphincter that keeps things in, is unfortunately compromised if there is fermentation downstream in the colon. And that's well shown or, or has been shown by a lot of scientific studies. So if you're chronically fermenting, releasing gases such as methane within the colon, that will impair motility further up. And, and this is the failure of, of, of our modern medicine which or modern gastroenterology, which, which basically fails to acknowledge really from mouth to anus, it is just a six metre long uh, tube. And there are various things uh, that can happen downstream that can affect upstream uh, symptoms. Do you think that the medical, the, the, the doctors and the surgeons that I met, do you think any of them knew what the solution was? Well, I mean, the question to ask yourself is, did any of them appear to be metabolically healthy? I, it's not something I've thought about, but if I, if I have a quick think about the shape and the size of the, the doctors I was dealing with, um, no one stuck out to me as being super mega obese or anything, but I, it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, Pran, because when I look back at what I deemed to be normal or accept, acceptable back then has wildly changed now because of getting my own health in check. And, and for the record, for those listening, you know, I was carrying 60 pounds of body fat, more than what I am now, and much less muscle mass. And I had visceral fat stuffed around my organs which when I was able to come off the omeprazole, which was by basically removing gluten and refined carbohydrate, within three months, I lost three and a half kilos of, of visceral fat around my organs via DEXA scan. And throughout that process, have put on uh, now about 10 kilos of lean, but incidentally, half a kilo of skeletal bone density. And I was, cu I was curious to know whether you had any insight about how I could put the bone density on given I was coming off a, a drug that stopped my body absorbing calcium. Yeah, absolutely. Look, again, though, the, the uh, conflicting factor in all of that might be the fact that, you know, bones, we, we classically think bones are mineral, uh, and they are, you know, they're calcium, phosphate, magnesium. There's a lot of mineral there to, to solidify that, that, um, that, that tissue. But bones are, um, the vast majority of bone is protein. Um, it, it is largely protein. So you'll find on a diet such as yours, which is presumably a lot higher in protein, well, that's one way to, to solidify bone. Um, in addition, a lot of animal-based diets tend to be far richer in calcium. So you, you'll find uh, it really promotes 
called bone health with regards to proton pump inhibition affecting uh, bone bone density. I'm not so certain, you know. I think the same factors that predispose you to thin bones, diet and a lack of movement, are probably the same things that predispose you to reflux. So, um, you know, uh, correlation, not causation, I think would be the way I'd look at that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just love talking about it. Every, every medical professional I've had on here, I kind of ask them and I think because of the side effects from some of the PPIs that they're figuring out, like the B12, the iron malabsorption, the calcium, I just wondered whether my body had been leaching calcium out of my skeletal system because of the inability to get it and my poor diet, and then it started to repair itself again because I had a small filling, which is heals through yeah. X-ray, only yeah. a small one. And I just thought that was so interesting. Like the body is just so extraordinarily uh, talented at fixing itself when you give it the right fuel, you know? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And it, it's, it's, a, it's the issue. We, when our diet is compromised, when our absorption's blocked with drugs such as proton pump inhibitors, you've got to be able to leach the nutrients from your own body. And that, that I think, is, is one of the big driving factors behind osteoporosis and sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle. Um, which, of course, promotes fragility. It's, it's our body chronically having to pull from its own stores, um, you know, and, and it's a sad reflection of, of the modern-day world that vast majority of our elderly now suffer these sort of conditions. So thank you for that, by the way. Um, you are in phenomenal shape, Dr. Pran. Thanks. What do you eat? Um, look, I, I'm not particularly religious about a diet. However, what I tend to uh, emphasise is protein. So I'll make sure at least 60, 50 to 60% of my diet is protein-based. I don't go out of my way to overeat fat. Um, you know, I think that sometimes in these low-carb circles that the emphasis is on fat. I, I really, you know, I believe fat's a fuel. It is essential However, um, I think protein's where, where the key is at. Now, if the protein brings along the fat, like if I'm having eggs, for instance, and there's fat with it, that's fine. But I don't, I'm not adding excess amounts of fat to it. Yeah. Fat, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, exogenous. Um, now, uh, so my emphasis is on protein with, with fat and carbohydrate. I basically try and minimize it as best I can. I'm trying more and more to add in a little bit of carbohydrate just because I'm, I'm sort of ramping up the intensity of, of training. And I'm just finding that whilst, you know, there are some people that can do it primarily on a protein-based diet, I'm, for that, that extra fuel, I am requiring a little bit of uh, carbohydrate, which I make sure is non-refined and, um, and, primarily in starchy type of vegetables as well as some fruits, but uh, very minimal. It makes up a very small component of my diet. So, and is there any particular reason for that, Pran, like in your own health journey? Like what was your, what, what has your health been like in the past? Yeah, look, it's, it's markedly improved. I mean, approaching 40 now, I mean, compared to when I was probably in my mid-30s, I started this journey. And I think what prompted it was this chronic uh, inflammation, so these joint pains, aches. Uh, it's that visceral fat, which I was unable to shift despite still continuing to train. Um, and, you know, I was following, I was following the guidebook 
the medical school guidebook on what, what an adequate diet is, which is, you know, the oats and bowls of vegetables and fruits and grains and really uh, making myself feel guilty about eating meat. Um, and, and I just I, I found my body deteriorating. And at some point I thought perhaps this is just age and genetics. And I was sort of resigned to that fact. But uh, it didn't make sense to me. And, and, and thank goodness for, you know, discovering um, uh, Robert Atkins' book, which I read, um, which was fantastic. Um, you know, and he's, I don't think we acknowledge him uh, much uh, with, with this modern day low carb world, but he was, he was one of the front runners for, for the low carb movement and he was vilified, uh, but he was spot on. And um, so that, that was a game changer for me. And then in addition, you know, I've got to sort of acknowledge guys like Dr. Sean Baker and uh, Dr. Paul Saladino that, that, that have kind of really made this, um, uh, this sort of knowledge widespread. And, and you know, with, with that, my journey started a few years ago and I'm very pleased I took it uh, because it certainly reversed a lot of my metabolic health issues for sure. It's a really inspiring, Pran, and, and you know, from a cultural background, you're a proud Sri Lankan heritage, uh, and this is one area that I really wanted to pick your brain on. Some of the, uh, I'm a uh, passionate cricketer, I still play at 40, uh, banged 24 or 14 on the weekend. Very good. Um, we went down, fell 20 runs short, but... Uh, was a valiant effort by the boys. I've got a number of subcontinental players in the team, some of which for, for religious reasons are very strict vegetarian and, and probably borderline um, vegan because of a dislike for eggs and minimal dairy. And this isn't just for them, but, but for, for people in that situation, you know, they want to play at the highest level sport-wise. They want to achieve everything that they can. What advice or guidance can you give someone that wants to to get that oomph that they need? Yeah, look, it, it's a, it's a contentious topic, isn't it? Um, when you've got documentaries such as the Game Changers and that um, try and sort of promote the vegan diet as a method of it's a panacea for for elite sport sports um, or elite ability um, to perform at a highest level in sport. I, I mean, I'd have to disagree with with um, with a lot of what has been promoted in documentaries such as that. You'll know from from your own personal experience the the, the ability or the the reliance on a lower quality protein, such as plant based protein, drives. Um, your uh, your consumption of excess calories, basically, because you, you're never hitting the nutrient targets required. So you'll find that that uh, people from a subcontinental background, of which I'm, you know, from the same background, very heavily predisposed to diabetes. Because I, I, I think, you know, from a from a protein perspective, I don't think we quite ever meet our targets. And genetically, we're very lean muscle people uh, with very little very little muscle density. So you'll find that these excess carbohydrates, there's just nowhere to burn them. And we're so heavily predisposed to visceral adiposity. Um, so we can look very skinny on the outside, but, but unfortunately with significant fatty liver, which predisposes to insulin resistance. So uh, whilst you can, you can pull off these sort of diets in your early uh, 20s potentially, 
I don't think it's possible past your mid thirties. I think I think there's just less give in the body. I think you're in a catabolic state. And whilst you can still perform from a sporting perspective, because uh, take a sport like cricket, for instance, which is very dependent on uh, you know coordination, hand-eye uh, coordination, uh, it is very difficult to push past the fact that um, a lot of these people will develop metabolic syndrome. You could still play sport, you could still be exercising and still have early evolving metabolic syndrome. So I think, I think to be honest, you can, you can do it on a plant-based diet. You can perform. However, it requires very, very careful supplementation um, and uh, probably someone who's trained to be able to supplement you in that regard. I, I think that's not sustainable long-term, um, nor is it particularly natural if it's requiring these high levels of supplementation. Um, I feel. Well, I think that's a fair answer, Doc. And, I, and something that struck me, and this this might be deemed offensive to some people, but you know what? I'm happy to say it. You shared a post recently about the indigenous tribes of India, and you know this whole you know people saying that you know the, particularly the Indian culture was has originated on vegetarian. I don't know that that's the case. Are you able to shed some light on that? No. Look, India is an interesting uh, country, um, you know, as is as is any country on this planet. I mean, we're, our history is so rich, but, but the indigenous of of India were were hunter gatherers, and unfortunately, not many of them exist now. I mean, India is a vast place. They may do in some remote areas, um, still undiscovered, but. Uh, what is known about these people is that, that they are very closely related to Aboriginal of Australia. Um, in fact, there was probably gene transfer even up until 4,000 years ago, but the, the Australian Aboriginals are thought to have crossed some form of land bridge 60,000 years ago from Asia and entered, um, entered Australia, which is amazing, isn't it? Wow. Um, you know, and, 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 now that gene transfer can continued up till up until four thousand years ago. So they're obviously crossing by things like canoes still. Now very similar people um, in in that regard, and you still get some remote tribes in Sri Lanka. They're called the Vedas, um, and these are hunter gatherers. And again, times kind of caught up with them, and they've been introduced to grain, and subsequently their health has suffered as a result. Um, but these people were, were hunter-gatherers and remained hunter-gatherers up until um, the, the sort of um, colonisation of India from various tribes. India is such a melting pot, right? Uh, there were tribes moving in from, from Europe and, and, and so forth, bringing in farming. But this is how people existed. Um, the Hindu religion, um, the current sort of interpretation of it is that it vilifies consumption of beef and beef-based products but there's a lot of contention and uh, contentious sort of discussion about all of this because it appears that the very early hindus in fact their sacred texts promote the consumption of beef so i think we've this modern world and the interpretation of hinduism is we've convoluted it to kind of fit a narrative that really wasn't wasn't historically accurate so um yeah, it's it's uh, it's a very interesting um, way of looking at it. But I shared some photos yesterday of of these hunter gatherers that still um, or used to exist in Asia. A few that, that some of these photographs are 
um, quite quite a few decades old, but you can see a very lean, athletic uh, appearing people that that are that are that are hunters basically, um, and they've been lost through through time. It's I find this stuff so fascinating, Pran. You know, wouldn't it be horrendous to to find out at some point in your life that your food practices are based on misinformation? lies in some cases which we know with some cultures certainly in the Seventh-day Adventist movement I would be really pissed off and what I would encourage people to look at is whether you believe in it or not from an ever look at everything through an evolutionary lens and empower yourself with as much knowledge about what what your forefathers did because you know history history gives us all the lessons that we need in my opinion and I, and I sort of look at everything now through that lens and I'm like, yeah, but the world's changed. I think for the most part, I don't, I don't know that it has. And and one of the areas that really struck me was that, you know, people on a low carb need to take in extra salt. Um, doing some more digging and, and from one of the posts you shared, I think it was the Maasai that, that consumed quite a lot of blood from the animal. You know, there's a lot of electrolytes in there. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, salt's an essential um, mineral. I mean, our body needs it, wouldn't survive without it. it it's, you know, we're, we're fairly unique as a species because we're so adaptable under different circumstances. So different tribes would have evolved differently, you know, and, and that's quite evident when you study a lot of the remaining hunter-gatherer groups that got varying distribution of macronutrient ratios. You know, there's some tribes in South America that consume 80% carbohydrate and, and perhaps a lot lower uh, protein content. And their physical stature is a bit different to the tribes such as the Maasai that are, that are very heavily protein dependent. And the Maasai, as you know, amazing athletes. Um, and so we, we've just evolved under different circumstances. Um, the, you know, you look at the pygmies of, of, of Central Africa, which were more dependent on fruit, um, you know, as they regressed into the forest. And these people, much shorter stature and, 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 and development. So we've adapted to the conditions. And, and we, I suppose there are some silos that have existed. But what is optimal for us? And, and you know, the species that preceded us, the Homo erectus, these guys have really perfected hunting. Um, and this is where us as humans, we get a lot of our physical traits. The ability to stand upright was driven by that progression from the trees of Africa onto the savannas. It forced down through climate changes, these savannas regressed. And then this, this journey to, to become Homo erectus, the ape that hunted, uh, not just scavenged, but hunted, ran uh, for long distances and used persistent hunting um, to be able to hunt them. You know, you look at a look at how we're built. Is we're the only ape that can that can run, um, and that was through Homo erectus and this uh, persistence hunting. We're, we're hairless because we we sweat um, in this African heat, um, whilst these animals that we pursued often, uh, you know, succumb to the to the heat. So everything about us is built for that. Um, but as the world changed around us, we adapted to whatever environment. Um, came about. So we look at this modern environment, however, and it's just so refined. It is just so different that our ancient bodies cannot keep up. We can adapt 
and we have adapted. Um, you know, you look at our jaw structures and and dentition and, and bones. We've we've kind of had to regress um, uh, to adapt to this modern environment, and, and and that is the fundamental issue. We we are reaching a point now where our stone age bodies will not allow us to adapt to this space age environment. It sounds like you've been reading Western A. Price's amazing book. Well, I, believe it or not, I haven't. I haven't read it, but I've, I've seen some of the philosophy, and and uh, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with him wholeheartedly. I mean, he sounds like an amazing man to be able to interpret it that way all those decades ago. That that is amazing, and I think his journey was prompted through study of the indigenous in various parts of the world, um, uh, which I think is really eye opening, and it's kind of the modern day arrogance, isn't it, when we say, well these sort of hunter-gatherer groups don't live beyond 30 or 40 and you just sort of wipe it under the rug. But, again, I've made reference to this in the past that a lot of that, that is driven by their childhood mortality. That average age is so skewed. So, really, I think we need some humility and, and, and we need to be able to study these people in, in the environments that they exist in because that's how we did it um, many thousands of years ago and, and be able to extrapolate some of their knowledge rather than sort of sweep it under the rug and saying, well, they're, they're savages or they're just ancient people. We're, our physiology is still very much similar to theirs and any living system is best suited to the environment in which they're adapted to. Yeah, spot on, Pran. And just for those that are, that are curious, Weston A. Price was a dentist, uh, I think he was Canadian or North American certainly in the early 1900s, who was trying to figure out why the Western world suffered from so many caries or fillings or dental, you know, mal malformation of the jaw, cramped, crowded teeth. So he took his family on a, dec a decade-long journey to visit as many of the Indigenous tribes around the world as he could, and he went to the Maasai, came to Australia, the Aboriginals, New Zealand, Māori, Papua New Guinea, places in Sweden or remote villages in Switzerland, rather, um, you know, the Alaskan Inuit, there's a whole bunch of them. And and this was before they were bastardised by modern man and, and compromised by the outside world. And they were living these most extraordinary lives where they basically didn't have any chronic illness at all, no heart disease, uh, strokes, heart attacks, Alzheimer's, like none of these modern chronic illnesses existed they didn't require really police stations or hospitals because people people functioned well and they didn't misbehave and they weren't as unwell. And sure, if you broke your leg, got a compound fracture, you'd probably fucking die, right? I think that's Darwin's natural uh, selection right there, as is the infant mortality. You know, we're 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 breeding this these generations of basic like these people that are soft as butter. And we've lost that ability to, to actually grow some balls and, and run at a lion like the motherfucking Maasai do. You know, they run and scare away lions from their flock. And I think that that doesn't happen when you're on a soy slop-based protein diet, you know? Yeah, definitely. Look, it, it's um, we're, we're certainly interfering with, with, um, with Darwin's laws, I suppose. Um, but... On, on, the, on, the, on the flip side, look, I'm, I'm glad infant mortality is addressed because you, you, you look at the statistics, 40% um, of some of these groups were dead before the age of 15 and, 
in these hunter-gatherer groups, um, it, it's a huge, huge percentage. How brilliant would it be to be able to combine modern-day obstetric um, care with a human-appropriate diet? With in combination with with useful vaccinations, and vaccinations is a, again a controversial topic, but but there are some vaccinations that have been that have been game changers for for mankind, as well as you know appropriate use of antibiotics to be able to combine all those things to get productive, um, long living lives where we're not suffering chronic illness would be would be brilliant. Would be brilliant. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Pranit. And, uh, you know, this is the beauty of this wonderful information age that we're in now. And I suppose that the next area of your expertise that I want to address is for people that are suffering and the areas of, of chronic illness that, as far as I can tell, you've been focused on are things like digestive issues, heartburn, reflux, whatever you want to call it, Crohn's disease, IBS. Can you add, add some more in there for me? Yeah, look, there's there's a quite a lot. I mean, you look at diseases like fatty liver, fatty pancreas. Uh, they, these are all encompassed in the same thing. I mean, lifestyle-based digestive diseases. Um, so there's a whole lot of them, but I think you covered most of them well. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at Crohn's. I know a few people that have got various stages of Crohn's disease at the moment. I bring them to your clinic. We sit down and you say, what? Yeah, look, it's inflammatory bowel disease is a very, very tricky one, um, you, you know, and we look at irritable bowel syndrome, IBS versus Crohn's, which is IBD. They, the research suggests they're all on one big spectrum, right, except with irritable bowel, there is no overt damage that we can observe in the bowel when we do when we do endoscopies or colonoscopies. Inflammatory bowel disease when the inflammation's kicked in. What stimulates this immune system to behave this way? We're not sure. What we're seeing is this huge rise in, in autoimmune illnesses globally, right? And what's driving that? And, and that's difficult to know. Is our immune system becoming more redundant as we're protecting people against infection through antibiotics and, and vaccinations? It's possible. Um, in addition, we live in this very pro-inflammatory um, uh, pro-inflammatory state. I mean, when you consider um, how we eat now and, and, and our diets and this use of refined vegetable oils, it, it, it really it predisposes us to an immune system that is chronically stirred up. In addition, we're protected through infection. This is called the hygiene hypothesis that we're, we're very clean. You've got a bad combination there. So once inflammatory bowel disease is set in, um, it can be it can be very very challenging just to treat with diet alone. Now I've seen anecdotes of people trialing these elimination diets, um, such as uh, you know the carnivore diet, for instance, and seeing some resolution or some people seeing improvement. But clinically, there is no evidence as yet, and and so this is the difficulty that I face as a gastroenterologist. Unless there is clinical data to be able to support practice, it is very difficult to implement it. Some of the things that we've seen, which are quite amazing, is in paediatric populations, um, I think this is in Seattle, they've done a study uh, where they essentially did an elimination diet where they took out refined carbohydrates. It's called the specific carbohydrate diet and uh, with excellent results in these children. 
Now, you ask yourself, why can't we apply this sort of diet to adults? And the difficulty is compliance. Um, you know, adults can find it very, very difficult, find it very difficult to be compliant to an elimination diet. And that, again, is a reflection of this environment. We're just surrounded by this stuff. And it's so deeply addictive. We're not protein leveraged, leveraged enough. Henceforth, we just keep reaching for these refined foods. And so once the immune system's stirred up, it is very, very difficult to switch off um, unless you can be quite strict about it. Now, I have had some patients say to me, look, they are not willing to trial medications and they would like to try an elimination diet. And, and thankfully, I'm surrounded with amazing dietitians in my practice. So the ones that have been able to trial an elimination diet properly, a lot of them have seen some good, good um, results with that. Now, in those that have had a chronic inflammatory bowel disease, where the immune system has been stirred up for many, many years, it's very difficult to switch that off with diet because um, it, it, it has just become a chronic set-in state, I suppose. Yeah, and look, and I, and I totally understand your position, Dr. Pran. You, I mean, you've got to be very careful about what you say and, and how you go about things, you know, given the restrictions around medical licences. Absolutely. I, I, um, I, on the other hand, don't have a license to lose. And I, on the other hand, don't give a fuck. So I would encourage people to uh, heed what you are saying. Absolutely. And I suppose read between the lines. The, the lack of desire to want to adopt a what could potentially be a temporary elimination diet, to me, says to says that the person doesn't want it bad enough i i reached a point of total uh exasperation with my health i fundamentally believed that i could heal myself but i didn't have the knowledge and i watched one interview with joe rogan and functional medicine dr chris Kresser, and he spoke about the link between gluten intolerance and and heartburn and and uh, as soon as i adopted that you know the the results for me have been nothing short of extraordinary, and I and I truly feel, Pran, that my that my symptoms and conditions have gone forever, it, unless I started eating the same stuff again. And and I think that's a really powerful n equals one, you know, example of of what you can do if you really want it. And I believe this, you know, there's a great quote by Henry Ford that you would have heard a thousand times, no doubt. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. <laughs> great quote, isn't it? Great quote. It, it, it's, it really, from, I mean, we see thousands of people in our practice and, and I try and empower people, try and motivate uh, people. And I just find that, that the younger you are, the more malleable your habits can be whereas to change someone who's 70 or 80 years of age the, the, the way they've done it it really challenges every aspect of, of who they are and what they've become so i would i think this is where the internet's very powerful because the younger people are really super um, um clued on to that i think it's really important to address these habits early and and deal with them early this is why a preventative approach is brilliant um, because the older you are, the more chronic this illness becomes, whatever illness that may be, it becomes challenging to treat. Um, and people become very com comforted by their food environment. And it is important to challenge these comfort 
zones that people enter. Um, and so this is where I think an element of cognitive behavioural therapy, as a, as a clinician, I do a little bit of it with my patients. I, I, I think that's important. I think the combination of being able to do a, a human-specific diet with human-specific movement with some cognitive behavioural therapy to kind of reverse this modern environment and, and, the, and, the, and the advertising and the subliminal um, narrative that's been put out there, uh, along with these food guidelines that are that are so blatant to people, I think that's important. So we, we've really got a big challenge as clinicians if you're trying to apply that lifestyle model. What has been your most remarkable health recovery story from any patient that you've treated with whatever disease? Look, there's, there's a few of them. Uh, there's a few of them. But, um, you know, one uh, chap in particular um, stands out, a young guy with who presented to me with with ulcerative colitis. Um, I knew it was ulcerative colitis when I saw him because the symptoms were classic, bloody diarrhoea, uh, pains, um, inflammatory markers. Um, high. And I said to him leading up to the colonoscopy, look, just trial a elimination diet even leading up to the colonoscopy to provide you some relief, cut the fibre, a low residue diet, higher in protein, reduce the more inflammatory foods. And by the time I saw him in, in two weeks for the colonoscopy, whilst I was able to demonstrate colitis um, on the colonoscopy, his symptoms had largely started to settle. And he remains well to this point, you know, not medicated. And I'm doing a follow-up colonoscopy on him shortly to hopefully demonstrate that things have healed up in there for him. But his symptomatic improvement, his biochemical improvement, the what's reflected on the stool test has all been quite remarkable. But he's a very motivated character and he's been able to pull off this sort of diet. And this is what I'm finding, um, mate, it's that, that some people are able to do it and they're able to challenge things and challenge themselves and there are others that are really struggling with it. How do we reach the people that struggle with it? Um, this, is, this is the challenge ahead for me as I try and better myself as a clinician. How can we motivate, motivate everyone to do it? Well, uh, Doc, I mean, you're doing God's work here. And, and I think, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't know, do you do telemedicine at all with your, with your clinic, your practice? Uh, I do, but, but I'm limited somewhat. You know, as a doctor, sometimes we've got to physically examine people. We've got to, um, we've got to do colonoscopies on them. So I'm, uh, telemedicine, it's certainly, you know, I've seen a few people from Melbourne and interstate with that, but, but I, I find it challenging because um, there's a lot more to medicine than, than what can be conducted via, via the internet. Um, it's, it's still a very ancient art and it requires that hand-on patient and, and sometimes that one-to-one um, interaction. Um, so I do, I do, but I'm limited somewhat, uh, mate. No, that's right. I mean, it won't be long before Steve Jobs' legacy creates some kind of remote colonoscopy device that plugs into <laughs> the USB-C port. Yeah, uh, possible. You never know. One of my father's favourite jokes was, uh, I don't know what a colonoscopy is, but whatever it is, you can stick it up your ass. <laughs> God bless him. Prana, uh, you're a you're a busy man. You've got three young children and and a beautiful family there. I know you, you need to get back to saving more people from uh, a lifetime of misery. But before we wrap this up, is there anything that you'd love to finish on? Any guidance for someone that is at the end of their tether that just just needs some relief that you could share with our audience today? 
Yeah, sure. Um, look, I think I think to people out there that are struggling with their health, I think nutrition is a big part of why we struggle with modern illness, um, obesity, diabetes, blood pressure, the list goes on. The emphasis to, 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 to those people out there has to be on maximising your protein intake because fundamentally we're existing in this environment where we're just basically eating too much. It's a caloric excess that is driving a lot of these illnesses. So I believe while people, some people say calories don't matter and it's purely just this insulin um, model, I don't agree with that. Calories do matter and I think we're overdoing it. So how does one fall into a caloric deficit in addition to providing satiety? This is why these yo-yo diets where you're doing light and easy, weight watches, eating salads, it just simply doesn't work. Whilst you can lose weight, you are never satisfied. So how does one provide satiety along with a caloric deficit? It really is through maximising protein, which allows your brain to sense satiety because protein generally things like red meat are very nutrient dense in addition the amino acids that are generated from that allow for your brain not to crave so it is important to kill the craving so my advice to these people out there is just maximize quality protein and i think animal-based proteins uh, marine-based proteins far far superior to plant-based proteins i don't think there's any debate about that you know, I think the science is well established there. Um, and I think it's important to get some quality fat in your diet. And um, one final thing there is also try go out of your way to consume animals that are consuming what they're supposed to be eating because they often tend to be more nutrient rich. Um, with regards to carbohydrates, I think unless you've got the exercise levels to be able to burn that carbohydrate off, it's probably a non-essential macronutrient, um, which a lot of people, given that we live in this sedentary environment, simply don't need. And so people need to learn to manage energy. Fat and carbohydrate being energy, you need to learn to be able to manage that and juggle that. Yeah, it's some great advice, Pranit. And and just for those that are that are curious, I, I exist on a carnivorous diet. I had some really great success relatively recently at being able to knock the cravings on the head. And for me, that was about eating enough. And to give you an idea, I eat between seven to 11 times the protein recommendation from the World Health Organization. And next week, next Saturday, I'm attempting my th- my fourth 100 kilometer ultra marathon. And this time I'm attempting to do it fat adapted. So uh, take on zero plant carbohydrate, I've got, uh, I'll be probably taking on about a litre of full cream milk every 25 Ks, and I'm going to slow cook a lamb shoulder, which I'm going to eat when I get real hungry, probably around about the 50 kilometre mark. So I'll, I'll largely run the first 25 Ks fasted, maybe on some black coffee, and uh, about a teaspoon of um, Himalayan salt per hour easily, depending on the temperature, and I'll report back on how I went with that, uh, not expecting to set a blistering pace, um, given the glycolytic load on sprinting and stuff, but um, it's going to be a really interesting experiment, Pran. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, amazing, mate. I mean, you, you must be an amazing athlete. Like, uh, there's an element of genetics that go go along with that. You must have some quality fibers there. The you're right. The pace, as you say, may not be blistering because you're not carbohydrate loading and you're doing it fat adapted. Um, but so much better for you, so much healthier for you, and probably a lot more physiological. Um, the and and I think people. Um, sometimes fail to acknowledge that that protein is converted to glycogen. Your body will regulate all that for you. So your glycolytic fibres will still be fueled when they need to be fueled. And if, if, if there's not enough glycogen on board, well, you simply won't be able to perform that glycolytic exercise and you're more reliant on fat within your muscle, lipid oxidation to get you through that exercise. And that's the limiting factor. Sometimes you can't set this blistering pace, as you pointed out, but um, you're still doing it in a way that is very physiological, of course. Uh, awesome. Prant, where can we find you on social media? Uh, mate, I'm, I'm on Facebook and um, Instagram. My handle is Dr. Pran um, Yoganathan. Um, so I put out a few few posts um, a couple of times a day, or sometimes a bit more than that, just <laughs> depending on what, what the mood mood is um so yeah and no, i've been very grateful for the support and your support as well on that on that platform well the links will be uh listed below in whatever medium you're watching and listening keep an eye on dr pran because this mofo is about to blow up and if you or anyone in your family or anyone that you tr truly care about is battling with anything that relates to what dr p is focused on be sure to reach out and just empower yourself with some knowledge. It's been an absolute delight. Big shout out to Tracy McBeef for the introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Pran Yoganathan. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.